Hi everyone, welcome to The Green Room, where we speak to entrepreneurs and thought leaders in fintech across Southeast Asia. I'm your host, Amrita Veer. We are sponsored by the ASEAN Financial Innovation Network, or AFIN, Oxygen by Apex, and Open Banking Fintech Broncos. In this episode, we speak with Tejin Shin, co-founder, representative director, and CEO at Gojo & Company, about his experiences growing up as an ethnic minority in Japan, starting Gojo and its strategies for supporting microfinance institutions in Asia, and the future of the microfinance industry globally, especially in light of COVID-19. Gojo invests in microfinance institutions across Asia to enable financial inclusion of micro, small, and medium-sized enterprises. Gojo was founded in 2014 and closed their Series D in 2020. You can learn more about them by visiting gojo.co. And now a word from our sponsors. Hello, my name is Todd Schweitzer. I'm the CEO and co-founder of Brancas. Brancas is a Southeast Asia-based open finance technology company. And we do several things. We work with banks and other financial institutions with a set of software solutions to help them launch open APIs and API products um, in a matter of weeks. And we also provide uh, simplified APIs that enable any fintech or e-commerce or online business to instantly connect to financial services across Southeast Asia through a simple API. We operate in Indonesia, Philippines, Vietnam, Thailand, Singapore, and soon Bangladesh. And I'm very excited to participate in the Green Room and forward to supporting the Green Room podcast and also the broader Apex Oxygen initiatives. Welcome, TJ. Thank you so much for being here today. Um, I want to start off talking about your background. Uh, thank you so, for having me, Festival. Yes, absolutely. It's such a pleasure to have you here. Uh, so I want to start with your with like growing up in Japan. You you were born and raised in Japan. You speak Japanese. Um, you're joining us from Tokyo today, but you don't have a Japanese passport. Um, in fact, you don't have any passport. Uh, can you please explain this to us? All right. Okay. So um, the so this Tejun TJ is a, a Korean name. My parents are Korean, uh, but I'm stateless, so I don't have a passport. Uh, wherever I go, I bring my travel document, which is, um, I mean, the, the made under the laws for refugees in Japan. Um, so uh, I mean, when I, so before COVID, almost every week I used to cross at least one national border, and I visited many countries where we uh, I work. Uh, in some countries, whenever I, I try to enter the country, I'm taken to a separate room surrounded by, say, the, the airport policeman or whatever. Um, and sometimes I need to, to, how do I say, explain where I'm coming from. A hard thing to explain. Yeah, um, so it's, it's due to, I think, the complexity of um, or the void of proper legal frameworks uh, for those who came to Japan before the end of the war. Uh, so um, in a nutshell, my grandparents um, 80 years ago came from Korea Peninsula to Japan, but back then Korea was part of Japan. So they came to Japan as a Japanese national. And then, the, then after the end of the war, they became stateless and I inherited that status even today. Wow, and that's passed down generation to generation. 
Yeah, that's the, I think the rule for the, uh, I think the, the typical things for many nationality laws in Japan and many Asian countries. Um, yes, there is an option for me to um, the apply for Japanese nationality, but I personally think that it's a good reminder uh, because the, now I think I'm an entrepreneur. Uh, two years ago, I, uh, I became the, the, one of the young global leaders of the World Economic Forum. But still, whenever I try to cross just one border, um, it reminds me that I'm nothing in front of this um, frame of the, the, I mean, nationality framework. And the, yeah. whenever I encounter this kind of things, um, I always think about the marginalized people um, whom we are serving. So it's a good reminder in a sense. And clearly you've spent your career uh, working with marginalized people. I guess, how has like growing up you know, Korean and Japan, especially with no passport, really shaped the way you think about impact in your career? Yeah, so um, there is, um, I think there are roughly 1 million Korean Japanese people living in Japan. And most of them already acquired some nationality, especially Japanese nationality. For example, Masayoshi Son of SoftBank Group. Um, so he, he used to have the same status as mine. So when he, uh, determined to study abroad, uh, I think at UCLA, and then he acquired a nationality because otherwise he couldn't obtain a visa um, back then. So uh, anyway, there, there, was, there is a one million people community and uh, I was born and grew up in that community until I graduated from the, the university. Got it. And, and after you graduated university, I think you studied law and then you started working in private equity. Yeah, let, let me explain the background. So I, I think it's natural for me to aspire to be a human rights lawyer. So when I was a college student, uh, my major was human rights. And yeah, I wanted to be a human rights lawyer. And back then there, were, um, there was a, the September 11 terror attack followed by the war in Iraq and Afghanistan. And even in Japan, there were street protests against the war. Um, I, I participated in many of them. And I, what I realized is that, yes, human rights is a great thing, but I mean, I might be still wrong, but uh, I felt that the rule of the game is capitalism, if you like it or not. So I thought maybe I should learn the capitalism if I really want to, to pursue my sort of idea about human rights uh, situation, related situation. So back then, so I, I didn't have any knowledge about economics or business, but I thought maybe the best industry to learn capitalism is investment banking or private equity. And that's why I started my career at Morgan Stanley. Uh, the, I used to work for real estate, hotel, private equity, investment division of the investment bank, Tokyo office. And then I moved to Unison Capital, which is the um, back then, which was back then the largest private equity um, fund manager in Japan. Yeah. Um, but while you were working in private equity, you also started an NGO called Living in Peace. That's correct. Uh, yeah. So can you tell us about that? I mean, you were your private equity uh, guy during the day and um, running an NGO at night. Tell us about that. So the, the, so the context was I wanted to be a humanized lawyer, but I changed my idea and entered the investment bank. And um, after a year or so, I realized 
that this culture or the way of thinking at the investment bank, it's no criticism, by the way, is slightly or gradually encroaching in the my sort of um, mindset. So there, everything is translated to the numbers, right? Uh, which is not a bad thing, but um, I, I felt that maybe I might forget about my initial ambition or aspiration. And I think, yeah, it's nice to start something new by myself. And I, that's why I founded my own NGO uh, 13 years ago, um, after I think 12 months after I joined Morgan Stanley. And what we did were uh, two things in Japan and outside of Japan. In Japan, uh, we have supported, and even now I'm personally supporting, children living under alternative care system. So um, it's like foster parents, children's homes, etc. There are 50,000 children in Japan who are not living with their biological parents. And uh, their poverty level, education level, everything is much lower than the national standard. And I think it's a big issue uh, for the country. And I am still the national committee member to alter the system or to, to just improve the system of child um, welfare policy in Japan. So that's one thing uh, when, uh, that the NGO was doing. And another thing was microfinance. Uh, back then, back then there was no microfinance investment fund in Japan, and we spent our weekend, holiday seasons, vacation to visit the developing nations, and we conducted due diligence by ourselves, and we launched the fund using crowdfunding, and made, I think, around ten investments in microfinance institutions, and all of them turned out to be quite successful. So then I thought maybe I can start this as a, uh, my full-time job. So that's the, the, yeah, my journey with my NGO. I just recently um, resigned as the, the president of that uh, NGO, but I'm still uh, with them. Got it. Um, so really Gojo was born out of, uh, of living in peace. In a sense, it's I think the combination of my professional career and my NGO career. Um, because Gojo is a holding company of microfinance institutions or the other financial service providers. And what we are doing is quite similar to, I think in a sense, private equity or um, like the um, investment company like SoftBank, although uh, we participate heavily in the, uh, the operation and technology side of the local, operation, the local business. Let's talk about Gojo. You know, you guys invest in microfinance companies and your footprint today is in Cambodia, Sri Lanka, Myanmar, and India, I believe. So maybe uh, let's, let's talk about um, Gojo and the unique approach that you guys take to microfinance. The company's vision is to uh, create a world where everyone can determine their future and we are working to extend the financial inclusion to everyone. So. In 2012, when I was invited to join Summer Davos Conference of the World Economic Forum, I realized that in 21st century, an individual can make a private sector version of an international organization. So World Economic Forum used to be an NGO founded by an individual called Professor Schwab. And he spent 40 years, uh, and then and now World Economic Forum is like a yeah, private sector version of the United Nations. And I thought maybe I can do, maybe I can do uh, the same thing in financial inclusion segment. And that's why we determined that, okay, we are going to make the private sector or the bank by 2030. So anyway, um, uh, it has been six years since we started the journey. 
So what we are doing right now, although we want to expand our business more in saving segment, is mainly microcredit, which is the uh, business loan, um, typically, for uh, low-income households in developing nations. There are roughly 1 billion households, uh, so in terms of population, it's like 4 billion people who are unbanked or underbanked. Underbanked, the, the, the definition of this is that people don't have um, access to useful financial services, even though they have bank accounts. So many of them the, um, have the, are, I mean, living with low income and smartphone penetration ratio, it varies um, from region to region, region, but in Asia, uh, it's still very low. If you go to big cities or younger generation, it's much higher, but um, our typical customers are middle-aged uh, women and uh, smartphone penetration is low and also literacy ratio is also not that high. So 30% of the people cannot read or write. And therefore microfinance has used people, branches, papers, and cash. And to make the business sustainable, they, the, I mean, um, need to do two things and that uh, these two things are becoming a uh, big bottleneck in financial inclusion. One is it's quite inconvenient, uh, it's slow, inflexible, and the lending driven. Um, many microfinance institutions are um, depending much on lending. Um, yeah, all the, we ourselves are also in a, um, the same situation right now, but we at least have the aspiration to change that. And another reason is uh, the thing bottleneck is that um, it's quite expensive. Let me explain further why it's that expensive. So this is a typical cost structure of ASEAN microfinance institutions. And the biggest cost component is funding cost. And it varies, by the way, from country to country according to the inflation level, uh, or etc. And the second biggest cost component is personal cost. So if there is no friction in the world, the low, even low income households, because most of them we pay the money properly, um, they should be able to enjoy their, I mean, the loan at much lower interest rate. But due to this high operation cost, uh, people need to, I mean, pay much higher interest rate. And now let me explain further why personal cost is that high. If you do breakdown, personal cost is, can be break, break, break and broken down into staff and average salary total asset, which is in many cases loan clients per average loan size. So this, then you get two key KPIs to look at the financial aspect of microfinance business. So staff per, uh, to clients ratio, uh, typically it's one to 200. Uh, by the way, uh, for example, Bank of America, uh, it's one to 300. And if it is anti-group, anti-financial normally, it's one to 70,000. So uh, that, that's the scale that you, the, the, you, the, um, that you might want to know. And average loan size also is low. And as a result, the personal cost ratio is um, very high. And another issue I think is most of microfinance companies are subscale, very small, small. So it's not easy for them to enjoy um, the lower cost of fund. And yes, surely the finance is the scale economics business. So the, their 
um, the productivity tends to be very low. So, um, so our approach uh, to solve this issue is one is global scaling and another is tech application. Um, so except for some countries like Indonesia, India, and some other big nations, um, even in the even one become the biggest player, um, your scale is not that uh, big enough to invest heavily in uh, the technology. So by scaling globally, you'll be able to enjoy a very large um, the scale, uh, which can easily absorb big tech investments. And also by diversifying the sovereign risk, you can enjoy the higher uh, the lower cost of debt. And we, what we are also doing right now is to share the best practice from one company to another. And the tech application, uh, I think this is what many other fintech companies are also doing. So Gojo is, a, as I briefly said, it's a holding company. So we acquire uh, the majority stake or establish group financial service providers in the world. And what we do is to provide fund and expertise, which is uh, one is management support and another is technology uh, related support. And the third thing is monitoring. Uh, this, the third part also is very important because ultimately this is a finance business and our, um, we are in a sense a conduit um, in which, uh, by which money from uh, money flows from those who have money and those who need. Um, and to achieve that, we have to, I mean, have great governance control scheme um, such that investors can comfortably invest in us. So our journey so far, when we started the company in the first 12 months, we started the business in three countries simultaneously. And we proved that we can do the business in many countries together. And then we entered Series A and B financing, and then we entered India. And until 2023, we will allocate uh, roughly 80% of the capital to India. Uh, there are two reasons. So one is in India, I think we can scale business very fast. And also uh, we believe that India will be um, the, the source of the next generation microfinance revolution um, uh, using technology. Uh, just the, let me a little bit digress, but when I visited China 15 or 10 years ago, um, I had an opportunity to meet Chinese entrepreneurs and I was really amazed by uh, their the, the quality. And I thought that, okay, they will dominate the world and that's what's happening right now. And three, four, five years ago, um, I had the same feeling in India and uh, I, I think the very big thing will come. And the many great entrepreneurs, engineers, practitioners are working in the financial inclusion segment. So I think the after growing and being successful in India, I think we will be able to export the business uh, to the rest of the world. Yeah, surely finance business is, uh, regulate, uh, is regulated. Um, so uh, we cannot just cut and paste uh, one successful model to another. For example, in India, the ID system is very strong and that's not um, there, that's not the, in the many countries, but I think 80% of the business model can be exported to the rest of the world. And that's what we are doing. The long-term goal um, remains the same since day one, 
So by 2030, more than 50 countries, uh, 100 million uh, customers. Yeah, we have many shareholders, uh, lenders, etc. And uh, as for group companies, we have um, seven companies um, in whole countries. And in India, um, due to some the regulation, um, we can't do many uh, business uh, in one from one entity. So we have four entities there. Thank you, TJ. Go back to the point you raised about you know supporting the MFIs in your portfolio, especially with technology uh, to help you and them scale. Can you talk a little bit more tactically, more explicitly about what some of those technology tools are and how your MFIs use them? Right. Um, these are the three things that we care a lot about a lot. Uh, operation first and then apply technology. And um, there is a one, I mean, the, my favorite quote from Bill Gates. Um, so automation applied to an efficient operation will magnify the efficiency, but vice versa. And that's what I realized when I started the business. So the altering or the, the, the I mean, transforming microfinance business using technology was in business agenda from day one, but we couldn't do that because the, I mean, it, I felt it was premature to do anything technical. So uh, that's why we spent first four years to enhance operation and using technology um, what we are doing right now is cashless, paperless, and uh, algorithm-based lending. And these services are provided according to um, the, the tech readiness of our customers. So as I explained in the beginning, most of our typical customers don't have smartphones, and some of them are illiterate. So the, one of our group companies, Satya, um, from day one, they started this cashless uh, microfinance services using fingerprints. Um, Satya is um, the only microfinance institution in India succeeded in doing this. So this meeting, uh, microfinance collection meeting is a typical uh, thing for um, many microfinance institutions. But um, the big difference is that um, customers don't bring cash. They, what they need to bring is just their, their other hard part. Uh, ID card only. So they press their fingerprints, then the payment is done. The key part, I think, is so back back end of this business is the so back end. Uh, I mean, the core banking system of this business is the completely ready for any I mean digital service. So when COVID pandemic um, the kicks in kicked in, uh, the we quite immediately launched the, the payment service called Satya Pay, where uh, our customers, if they have smartphones, they can use smartphones to repay the money. So the, that's one example, um, the, how we address the reality of our customer. Yeah, especially in Cambodia, the, we, I mean, the partner with the uh, money transfer service providers, and this is what we do in Cambodia, it's a, it's a steer pilot. Uh, so we circulate tablet PCs to uh, the local agents um, who are typically the shop owners like this. And then the, so our clients, when they come to our agents, we call them M-Lady, um, then they are very trained so they can put the order, the customer's information. And then loan assessment is done automatically and we pay the money, uh, the dispersed money. Oh, Maxima is our subsidiary in Cambodia.
And now today we pay the money, um, their score gets updated. And the, yeah, so they can apply for a bigger loan if they need. Uh, for more tech savvy clients, typically MSME, um, the small to mid-sized enterprises, um, especially merchants. Um, so we are doing supply chain financing. Um, so many SMEs face um, working capital constraint, mainly coming from the gap between their payment cycle and the sales cycle. And also, um, the, it's too small for banks and too big for MFIs. And the, so one of our group companies, Loanframe, uh, is providing the solution. So they get data all in electric form, um, bank reports, invoice information, uh, tax reports, etc. We um, the process them automatically, and the after a confirmatory phone call, the we complete the the loan underwriting, and then the so we notify the scores. Then big corporates, if they sell goods, they can get money immediately. And these merchants, we pay the money to the banks um, within three to six months. So these are um, the what we are doing right now and we are also these days um having uh, the work working group to think about how we really can innovate uh the saving what the, the the saving service for our customers so anyway the key uh, yeah key, key is to start with the reality of uh our customers and i i always love and the, i really want to go but now but I, really, I always love to visit the field and the, uh, spend time with our clients or the, the typical villagers in the field. And then the, there, um, yeah, we always now adopt um, the, to come up with the better solution. Yeah, thanks, TJ. I, I think before we move on to talking a little more broadly about microfinance, I just want to ask um, for you and for Gojo, what are some of the biggest challenges you face, especially using technology in microfinance? What either from your your investors, from the MFIs you serve, from their customers, what are some of the biggest challenges you face? Yeah, so I, I think the the fundamental difficulty for typical microfinance institutions to apply all these things, I think it's system side, uh, backend, so core banking system. So at level, the new things, uh, I think doing something new at that up level is relatively easier, but um, always the making a centralized core banking system is the big challenge. And as we get bigger and the, we have, I mean, seven companies in four countries. Uh, so we are at least developing data lake, such that we can be, I mean, uh, correct all the data sets in the same, um, the, the structure. But um, the, this is, a, I think, the biggest challenge. Uh, I think any, every other um, the player is, I believe, facing the same challenge. Um, but and also, the, if you're big, it typically takes two to three years. And in the worst case, by the way, in Japan, uh, the one bank just completed their um, system update. It took twenty years. Um, so the. If it takes 20 years after the update, already your, your, your new system is already a legacy system. 
so uh, anyway, the system side is the biggest challenge, I think. Um, and also, one, once you develop the great system in the backend, then I think the, um, the design of the product will be another challenge. I quite often encounter the services which are developed by pure supply side perspective, um, just ignoring the reality of the customers. Uh, so that, that's, I, th I think, another challenge, I would say. Um, so for example, the, if we really want to cater to the low-income households in developing nations and the most marginalized people, many of them don't have smartphones. So yeah, it, it's great to envision that the, te the I mean, technology will change, uh, will be able to change everything in the future. Uh, but uh, I, I mean, I, I always love to, to um, the, see the reality and the stuff from them. Um, you know, thinking of, uh, you know, actually addressing challenges for customers, but with your system, how much does the actual interest rate decrease for your borrowers? Our average lending rate right now is roughly 25% or lower. Um, so it's the, it depends on the country and it depends on the business. Um, if it is typical microfinance, um, in USD, it is... Right now, I think 18, uh, no, less than 18, 16% or something. Um, so in India, typical microfinance, 24, 25, housing loan, much lower, uh, 10, uh, no, 18% or so. Um, so that's the, the level. So the, um, this interest rate question is always quite tricky because from country to country, the, uh, the base rate is very different. So what I always look at is the spread rather than the interest rate. And I personally believe that spread should be within 10% at most. And uh, uh, it can be the, if we work very hard, it can be 5%, uh, 5, 7, maybe. So that's a level that I'm seeing, thinking. Um, as for country, so we have 70 target destinations in the world. And, but we don't think that we can go everywhere. Maybe at best we can go 70% of them. And that's why we envision that we work in more than 50 countries by 2030. Now we are focusing on Asia because the, um, I mean, given the logistics, it's much easier for us to look at the all Asian countries. And the, um, so we will focus on India um, 80% of our capital will be allocated to India, but uh, using remaining 20%, we would like to allocate the, to the other countries. Uh, we are looking at Indonesia, Philippines, uh, especially in Asia. And um, we might also start our business in a small scale in Africa too, because um, the rule of the game might be a little bit different there. So I think it's nice if we start the business in a small scale such that we can uh, learn a lot to be ready for the rapid um, business scale after 2023. Got it. Thank you, TJ. Um, I want to talk a little bit more broadly about microfinance. Microfinance has kind of swung back and forth uh, in public favor. It's been like a silver bullet to solve poverty. Sometimes it's been discredited because of lack of data. Um, 
sometimes it's been severely maligned because some of the leadership of MFIs have engaged in some major public scandals. So I, I'm wondering for you, how do you see the effectiveness of microfinance and are there some key ingredients uh, for success? Thank you. Yeah, this is the, I mean, um, long lasting debate. And obviously in the academic sector, um, the most influential um, the researchers are uh, the, the Esther Difro and the Bernazi, um, they, I, I forgot his name. Uh, so they, um, they conducted our study using um, the RCT and they, they um, claimed that the microcredit doesn't have any impact on income improvement. And just recently they issued a new paper in 2019 and they slightly change their argument now. Um, so if microcredit is provided to the people who already had the business before borrowing the money, then microcredit did improve the income level of the people. And the, so that's a good, um, the, I mean, thing. Uh, so that, that's the impact of the uh, microcredit right now. But, the, the biggest impact, so the most impactful business um, the, or microfinance services um, service is obviously saving. So it's like the, the no, no need to perhaps explain, but because if you want to improve your life status, uh, you have to save, um, the, no, no question. And unfortunately, um, usually for many financial institutions, um, saving doesn't generate any revenue and uh, instead it incurs cost because you have to pay the interest to the depositors. So um, that's why I think the entire sector has evolved um, upon the lending business, but the, that I, I think needs to be changed. And uh, there is no question about the, the, any, um, the, the impact of the deposit. The, so or the saving. Uh, so that's the that's what I see. Uh, and one on top of that, uh, one another thing that I want to cry, uh, that, that emphasize is that so financial service in general is a sort of social infrastructure, and access to financial service I believe is one of the 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 very important human rights or that at least yeah, human rights. So the I mean, even let's say the, the impact of financial services on poverty alleviation was not that great as the, the, we expected, but at least having the access to basic financial services, useful financial services, um, does improve um, the utility of, uh, or the happiness level uh, or satisfaction level of the ordinary people in the world. Got it. And what are the opportunities and risks that you see in microfinance, especially in this, you know, kind of post-COVID world? So um, risk in many cases, so yeah, it's related to the more, one more question, uh, which is why the, the, um, the credit cost is that low. So um, the biggest risk in microfinance is political risk. Um, almost always. So whenever the, the default ratio jumps up to 10% or 20%, 
almost always it's due to politics. Um, in India, for example, 10 years ago, there was a huge microfinance scandal followed by uh, the, a, uh, the microfinance crisis um, the carried out by the politicians. And so that, that's the biggest risk. So the, uh, it's quite common, but um, before the election season, some politicians say that, okay, if I become the governor or minister or whatever, you don't need to repay money. Um, so that, that kind of campaign um, is everywhere. And the, that's the biggest risk, I would say. Um, but if properly run, make the properly run microfinance, especially if you have this face-to-face -face channel and uh, do the loan assessment properly, the default ratio doesn't go above 1%, 2%. In our business, for example, um, before COVID, um, our default ratio has never been higher than 0.5% um, for the last six years on, um, the, the consecutively. So yeah, that's the, that, so the, because political, political the, the politics is the biggest risk factor, uh, we always care much about the, the uh, state diversification, especially in India, um, this political risk appears at state level. So the typically say uh, governor bans microfinance, uh, that was ha that's uh, what happened in India before. So the, if, as long as we diversify the risk, I think the, we can manage it wisely. And TJ, I'll get to the opportunities in a sec, but you said that uh, one of the key ingredients for success is, is actually being able to have a lot of those face-to-face, in-person interactions. But how do you manage that in a COVID environment when we're really not supposed to be meeting face-to-face -face or transferring cash hand-to-hand? -hand? How do you manage that? Yeah, that's the, the biggest the, the challenge that we are facing. So by the way, microfinance has shown the resilience over the last four decades. So since it's the advent. Um, so the, regardless of say natural disasters, civil wars, uh, even wars, um, people, especially the low income segments in developing nations, they engaged in the, the daily business activities and therefore they could repay the money. Uh, but this time, the biggest black swan, I should say, is lockdown. Uh, because the, they are all prohibited uh, from doing any business activities for a um, few months or sometimes several months. So that was a hard hit for many of um, our customers. And yes, during the lockdown period, we couldn't meet our customers. And the, this collection became very, very difficult. But Fortunately, and this is what I predicted um, with um, um, the, a little bit hope, um, which is lockdown is, I should say, a luxury. Um, so ma many people can't afford, many governments can't afford that. And many governments in developing nations, especially India, um, they will not do any further lockdown because they know how um, it damages um, ordinary people's lives. So unless the next lockdown comes in, I believe that these things will go back to normal um, uh, in a half year or a year or so. Got it. So you answered my other question about the opportunity as well. No, 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 opportunity. Obviously, so saving is one thing. And these days related to saving, we are very keen on how we can perhaps update Rosca 
um, Mosca is like a, it's a saving group thing. And it's a very, very interesting model. Um, and we, so if we think about it, many financial services are coming from, let's say, the some grassroots level uh, money and management, the practice. And then, so people used to lend money um, the, among the group, and then they be, be began to form a bank, uh, and uh, they began to do this more um, institutionally. And the Rosca is pure grassroots level activity, and it's very interesting. So that's one opportunity. And the, the I mean, even in lending business, I think underwriting side, um, it's still labor intensive, and I think we can be automate more of the process. Uh, so um, the, even in lending space, I think there are many uh, great opportunities, especially for teenagers. Um, uh, I think there should be more pure mobile digital the uh, lending service. That's a great opportunity, I believe. Do, do you think there's a threat of, of banks also targeting microfinance clients, especially during COVID? Is there still a room uh, for microfinance to play? I do not think so. Um, so they, it seems similar, but a little bit different business. And the people working for banks and the MFIs are very different. And their strengths are different. So um, I do not think that uh, microfinance, uh, the uh, businesses, the, I mean, replaced by the banks. Uh, there is a, I think in the long run, there is a challenge, the, or the, the uh, I think FinTech players will be the major competitors in the future, um, where I think smartphone penetration ratio, um, the goes to maybe up to 70, 80%. Then I think FinTech players will also uh, thrive in uh, remote areas. So until then, I think the, we don't see big, the, the competition um, with the typical uh, the bands of fintech players, but in the end, I think we will have to face it. Got it, yeah. It'll be interesting to see how, how you take them on. Do you have any advice for fintech startups uh, looking to raise debt at a lower cost? Well, um, I mean, in, in a company, a country, sorry, like India, bank lending, lending from banks is purely, I think, um, the uh, credit scores driven. So the, um, you get credit scores from the uh, credit rating, I'm sorry, from Standard for uh, the or Moody's, and then you, you can get certain amount of the debt at a certain um, interest rate. But other than that, um, I think one, one thing is maybe we might want to think about any guarantee scheme by leveraging the shareholder support. Uh, that's number one I, I can think of. And another thing, which is I think the, what we have done in Japan is, so banks are typically yeah people say banks are um, bureaucratic and they just they follow the established rules and policies but i mean there always is a human being uh it's run by humans and what we have tried to do was 
how we can make them touched and we, how we can make them our supporters. So, the, so for example, our first lending, uh, the, uh, the first borrowing from Japanese banks. Um, so it was like the, very difficult because the, for this, the loan officers, it's the first time for them to lend the money to microfinance business. It's a Japanese bank. Um, so they were, they, their sort of career was at stake. Um, when they brought this to the credit committee, and um, st but still that person the tried to push this deal, and obviously the the, the, the loan funding happened, and uh, so the, this this kind of things um, do not disappear. So the we always try to uh, whenever do our uh, we do our business, we always try to abide by our guiding principles, which stipulate our management principles about uh, and the values. And the, we have our guiding principles sessions um, every quarter. Um, and I think in um, almost all meetings, at least one person mentions our guiding, our guiding principle um, in the meeting. And the, um, all, all these things I, I personally believe helped a lot. Um, it, it's not like the, um, the easy answer. Um, the, it really helped a lot for me or for us to raise funds from the many members. Thank you, TJ. So as you look forward, uh, you know, what are you most excited about um, with Gojo and microfinance and what scares you? Hmm. Exciting thing. Before I die, perhaps we'll be able to see the world where everyone can enjoy basic and useful and affordable financial services. Um, that's quite exciting to me um, because I myself was saved by financial access. Um, the, my parents saved a lot and the, the raised funds from somewhere to afford my education, but their efforts alone were not enough to afford my education. But, Luckily, I was born and raised in Japan, so there are many great scholarship programs. So I myself was saved by financial access. And it's nice to see the world where everyone can enjoy it. That's a quite exciting thing um, to make the world a better and a fairer place. Worries. Hmm. Um, so there always is a sort of um, the dilemma um, between serving the customers better and making profit. Uh, because the, it's a, Gojo is a profit, um, the, or the, I mean, for-profit company. So we have to make certain profits to, I mean, make our shareholders and the lenders happy. But we are founded to, I mean, the, to serve our customers better. And the only way I believe is innovation. Um, unless we innovate something, uh, we always have to face this dichotomy, dichotomy, uh, dichotomy of the making profit or serving clients. Um, to to overcome that, uh, I think we have to keep innovating our business such that we can provide better service than the any other players while making certain profit to make our stakeholders happy. Got it. 
TJ, that's all the time we have for today. Thank you so much. If um, folks want to reach out to you or get in touch with Gojo, how should they contact you? Oh, yeah, the gojo.co. Um, if you okay. press the button, then you will see maybe the hands of bankers, um, the manufacturer. <laughs> Good, got it. Thank you, TJ. Um, thank you um, for being our guest. Thank you, audience, for being here. And thank you again to Broncos and Apex for sponsoring us. Take care. And now a word from our sponsors. My name is Manish Devan. I am the Managing Director for AFIN, which is ASEAN Financial Innovation Network. We run the very popular apixplatform.com, which is a collaboration platform to help financial institutions work together with a very vibrant ecosystem of fintechs from across the world. We now operate what we call as Oxygen by Apex, which is essentially a knowledge sharing platform and we are very happy to collaborate with the green room it's a great combination of what we do as a platform service provider and what the green room brings to you as a, a knowledge sharing base you can find out more about apex on apexplatform.com and you can find out more about oxygen by logging into apexoxygen.com where you'll find a lot of great panels keynotes uh, master classes that we do from time to time and uh, look forward to seeing you there thanks for tuning in to this episode of the green room with amrita veer listen to us on spotify apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your podcasts and make sure to hit subscribe to get the latest updates you can also visit amritaveer.com to get more information join our mailing list and just reach out to us you can also write to us at greenroomfintech at gmail.com. We would love to hear from you. Catch you later.